Hello and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the information, knowledge, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. My name is G. Mark Hardy, and today we're going to talk about the demise of the cybersecurity workforce. Hmm. Yeah, let's look into that a little bit. And uh, this should be a fun discussion. And as always, please follow us on LinkedIn and, and make sure you subscribe so you can always get the latest updates. Now, We've all heard that knowledge is power, and we understand there's sort of a hierarchy where data exists at the bottom, but when you organize the data, it becomes information. Information, when it's applied, becomes knowledge, but effectively utilizing knowledge becomes wisdom. And that four-tiered hierarchy, if you've noticed, I kind of use that in all my introductions to the show, the information, knowledge, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. Well, knowledge is part of the hierarchy, but if you hear that knowledge is power and power is achieved at level three, what do you have at level four when you get to wisdom? Is it more powerful? And if somebody's wiser than you, then does knowledge really become a differentiator? So it's sort of like a Maslow hierarchy of needs where once you've satisfied a lower layer, applying more to that layer doesn't really help a whole lot. You've got to go on to the next level. See, it really comes down to people. And cybersecurity, as we know, is one of the hottest careers today. And for anybody who's in the job market lately, either hiring or looking to be hired, supply and demand is driving up costs. Now, let's take a look at some operating assumptions about our cyber experts. See, our working assumption is we'll always have what we need, right? And we assume we're competitive or maybe even superior to our cyber adversaries. However you want to classify those as APTs, foreign governments, uh, other companies we compete against, individual actors, etc. But what happens when we need more people? Well, we just create more job openings. Obviously, we'll just attract more talent, right? And if we're short on people, then offer more money and they'll appear because we can well, always rely on academia and consultants, if you're a government agency, for price, of course, to fill in the gaps. But what about the word assume? Remember that they say A-S-S-U-M-E, right? If our working assumption is we'll always have what we need, what if all of that is wrong? See, the problem is, is that governments, industries, corporations, they don't change because they win the wars or the battles or they're successful. They change because they lose. And Success breeds complacency in a lot of organizations. And if we've been successful in the past, what's the motivation to change? Because everything's working just fine. So what we want to take a look at then is if you think things are going reasonably well, what could cause a disruptive event, a black swan event, as they call it, that could cause your perception of cybersecurity industry, both as an employer or an employee, to change? So let's take a quick look at the people that we depend upon for cyber. Well, I guess the first question I have is that if we pay more, do we get more? Well, you're certainly going to attract more people. But the real question is, is that going to increase quality? Because a lot of people are going to want to apply for, if, if I advertise a job for a million dollars a year for cybersecurity, would you want it? Yeah, I would think so. And so you're going to attract more people, but it doesn't necessarily increase the quality. Now, is there a logical limit to what knowledge we can obtain? And then I guess I suppose, by extension, the amount of wisdom we could obtain. 
And then how is that going to affect our ability to get our jobs done? Because if we only have a certain amount of knowledge that we can accumulate, and what if our opponents have more to do than we do? And what if the opponents have more capabilities than we do? Can we catch up? If we find ourselves at a cyber disadvantage, is it just a matter of hiring the right people and buying the right tools to get there? Or do we give up? Let's dig in a little bit into that, some statistics. 95% of breached records, nearly 1 billion from the study I've cited, came from only three industries, government, retail, and technology. And as far as we depend upon them, well, two out of three ain't bad. Well, two out of three is bad. I mean, if government and technology have a billion breached records, that's a serious problem. Retail, yeah, it's important, but there's a lot you can do to protect yourself in that world. You can use disposable card numbers, you can always make cash, things like that. But government, they're going to know who you are. That's their job. And technology, well, we rely upon those. Also, 95% of cybersecurity breaches are due to human error. Well, obviously, eliminate all humans, right? You know, what's the alternative to humans? But also remember that the Japanese character for crisis is danger and opportunity. And so are we meeting that opportunity in the Western world? Our first priority needs to be critical infrastructures. PDD 63 back in the Clinton administration laid out a number of critical infrastructures. I remember that governments were not part of them. And so they reissued Presidential Policy Directive 21, PPD 21, to list 16 different critical infrastructure security and resilience, chemical, commercial facilities, communications, critical manufacturing, dams, defense industrial base, emergency services, energy, financial services, food and agriculture, government facilities, healthcare and public health, information technology, nuclear reactors, materials and waste, transportation systems, and water and wastewater systems. These are defined in our modern society as critical infrastructures. An attacker going after an opponent's critical infrastructure is likely going to select from these 16 items. Now, if you take a look at modern warfare today, whether it's cyber, kinetic, or a combination of the two, you'll find out that if it strays off the battlefield, as it tends to do, then this is going to be your next set of targets. We need to depend upon that. We depend upon all that infrastructure. I fly a lot. You know, transportation systems is on the list. So 2019, my last full year of travel before COVID, 114 flights. And then I went 12 months with like one trip. Well, I'm getting back in the loop again. So we depend upon all this infrastructure, but it also means because everything is automated, we depend upon who writes the code. Now, are you okay with code written by Cisco? How about Huawei? Now, I'm not going to get all into about nation states because that's not necessarily the point of the talk, but how about this? Are you okay with Boeing instead of Airbus? Because if you remember, the Boeing 737 MAX had some real issues with regard to air safety, and after two aircraft were lost, and then the entire fleet was grounded for a huge amount of time, we're now seeing that Boeing is selling them again, and people are getting on the planes and flying them. Well, 
What happened a little bit in the Boeing 737 MAX software? I could probably, having talked to a number of experts, give you a, an episode on that, at least half of one, but that's not my area of expertise, so I'm not going to stray into that. But from what I did learn is that Boeing had outsourced the development of some of the 737 MAX software to $9 an hour engineers working, well, overseas, right? Because you're not going to get a $9 an hour engineer in the United States. And these are people who wrote and tested the software, even though they didn't have a deep background in aerospace. Yet at the same time, the company was laying off experienced engineers and pressing their suppliers to cut costs. And what we're seeing here is sort of the culmination to ask the question, are MBA schools teaching that life safety comes down to a mere financial equation? Now, I might be a little bit biased on this because I did my MBA at a Jesuit school. So I tend to think a little bit more about social responsibility and the obligations you take on when you hire an employee to also include their families and things like that. But that's not really what's being taught mainstream MBA. Anybody remember Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, somewhere around 1908, plus or minus, where he wrote about the meatpacking industry? And there was a situation where he documents that somebody had fallen into the equipment and like, hey, Charlie's going to get chewed up by the, the, the blades. We got to stop the machine. And the supervisor said, let it keep running. It's cheaper to pay the widow the death benefit than it is to stop and restart the equipment. That certainly got the public's attention over 100 years ago. And we need to think carefully as we hire in these professional managers is how are they actually wired to think about things such as the importance of people over profit. So at the end of the day, we got to ask, whom can we trust? Well, the U.S. government decided, hey, we're going to do something about that. So we'll let, let's first federalize everything. See, federal positions in the U.S. government are characterized by, quote, higher vacancies and shorter tenures. Hmm. Well, anybody who's ever worked in the government understands that. Some times you'll get some rock stars that'll come in to the government. Jen Easterly or even, you know, Mudge, Pete's Echo, or a couple years at DARPA. But they're not going to stay for 20 or 30 years. That's really not the nature of government employment at a certain level. Now, for other people, a career in a government is a perfectly valid and rewarding option. But in 2019, Uncle Sam launched the Federal Cyber Reskilling Academy. And the idea was for federal employees that were not in IT, the first cohort was going to allow you to come up to speed in cybersecurity. 30 spots. Guess how many people applied? 1,500 non-IT federal employees for 30 spots. That's tougher than Harvard. All right, you got a 50 to 1 shot of getting in there. The second cohort decided to open it up to those with an IT background, and they filled all those spots, and that class graduated in September of 2019. Hey, we're on to something. Now, at this rate, it's going to take, I don't know if you do it two, three times a year, it's still going to take you 30, 40 years, well, you do something. But guess what? Cohort third, three, nothing heard out. Where are they? What happened to this program? It just sort of like disappeared. And if they're running it, then I can't find any information about it. So it was a great idea. But perhaps they said, well, we'll do something different. And now if you look at the cybersecurity job market, I've seen estimates as high as 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs globally. Now, in the United States, an estimate about 715,000 people are currently employed in cybersecurity jobs. Yet there's over 300 and 10,000 job openings currently posted by employers. 
All right, that's kind of what a two to one ratio, two and a half to one ratio. So every five people that have a job, two people have vacancies. And so we're only running at five sevenths. If you got that score in high school, uh, how would you do on your paper? 57%. Um, yeah, that would be a failing grade in most places. So we need to do a little bit better. Actually, those numbers are probably wrong. I got to do my math in my head faster. Hey, I'm recording this at seven in the morning. What do you want? Government IT employee demographics. 14% of the government IT employees are over age 60. And less than 3% are under age 30. So this big slug of people moving up. I remember the joke was back in the last recession in 2008 or so, that so many people were nearing retirement in the federal government. When the stock market nosedived and crashed, they said it's actually a secret plot to keep people from retiring because they can't rehire them. So now that everybody's 401k looks like a 201k, they're going to stick around for a while. Well, we might be facing that same thing again in 2022. Uh, we'll see where we're going, but it's not looking good right now. In any case, Dan Lorman, a former NSA employee, had said that, quote, I've heard many who move into the private sector from government to be disappointed with their lack of responsibilities and scope of duties, quote. Well, I got to tell you that private sector can certainly pay more. And for those of us who have served in the government service or in the military, as I said, I had 30 years of misspent youth in the Navy. You know that you can make more money on the outside, but you don't do it for the money. You're doing it for a different sense, for a reason of sense of purpose, for mission, or what, you know, job security, whatever it happens to drive you. But what's interesting is that in the government service, you often can get a greater, far greater span of control and scope of responsibility at given, given level than you often can in corporate. Now, just before COVID, I was able to get some information. So the global cybersecurity outlook, because that was the last sort of untainted year with all these rolling lockdowns, et cetera. So they did a survey of leaders at the World Economic Forum in Davos. It says that cybersecurity is the number one concern of U.S. CEOs. Job postings the year before from India were up 39% in cyber. Ireland up 18%. Now, Ireland's been home to multinationals such as Facebook, Apple, and Amazon, although we're seeing the efforts to try to go ahead and change tax laws and put minimum corporate taxes in place globally. That might change. Clicks on cybersecurity job openings in that year, 2019. Remember, last one before COVID. Up 18% in Israel, up 13% in the Netherlands, but down 1.3% in the U.S. And the question is, are we planning or responding to failure? See, the boom in demand in 2018 came after a number of massive cyber incidents across the globe in 2017, including disruption of power companies, airports, and the central bank in Ukraine. Yeah, again, the temporary shutdown of the National Health Service in the UK, and the publication of nearly 9,000 stolen CIA documents by WikiLeaks. So I found that on a blog post that was back in 2019 saying, hey, this is why everybody joined uh, the cyber force, because, well, we, they need us. Things haven't settled down, have we? The whole idea of a disruption at a power company is not a novel event. This is becoming kind of routine because if you remember when we took a look at critical infrastructures, we're seeing that those are becoming targets and healthcare becoming a target of certain underground operations that we've read about. And if you've read any of Brian Krebs' columns and some of the leaked information that's come out from some of those internal chat rooms, 
we're seeing that, hey, it's not like we don't care about people's health. We just care about making money. Hey, why not lock up some hospitals? They're got to pay. Otherwise, people will die. So they'll pay a ransom. Different type of person out there. If we look at some of the top paying cybersecurity jobs, application security engineer, average salary, about 128K. In direction of director of information security at 127.8, senior security consultant 126. You get down to a pen tester at 115, still not bad. A uh, security engineer, maybe 102. Information manager at 99.9. All these salaries are basically $100,000 or more today. Pretty good numbers. Now, if we take a look at those top paying cybersecurity jobs and we map them into the government pay scale which goes from GS1 to GS15, step one to step 10. Yeah, I know they'd look, they've been looking around at different pay bands and things like that, but this is the stuff that I learned many years ago, and it's still out there. We're at a GS1 step one, which is basically you're the person doing the time tick on WWV. Boop, boop, boop. You can do that for eight hours a day. Pretty low-level job. I don't know if anybody's a GS1. But when you get up to GS14 and 15, those are considered the rank equivalents in the military of 05 or 06. That's a lieutenant colonel or a colonel. Now, if you take a look and you map those 150 different paid numbers, GS1 to 15, step 1 to step 10, and then you take your typical AppSec engineer's average salary of those 150 potential pay scales for the government, 11 of them, 11 of them are going to be able to at least be as much as the average application security engineer. Now, these are management positions. You talk to someone in the GS-15, that's sort of a culmination of a career. You're up there, and that's a significant level. And yet we're saying that as a GS-15, you know, step one or two, you're not even going to make what an AppSec engineer could make. So how are you going to hold on to these people? And then these vacant jobs that we're looking at out there, those, those hundreds of thousands of them or millions, are they leading technology or are they lagging technology? See, a lot of companies are going to hire for current requirements. The concept of an investment hire means you don't have a current role, but you're going to get paid a salary. You sit on the bench. Well, this certainly does not improve quarterly earnings because there's zero return on investment. And as we saw before in an earlier discussion, it looks like the management techniques today are about squeezing as much profit as possible. And the short-term focus on profitability might put America and other parts of the world in a permanent tail chase for thought leadership. So is the future of the Internet Plus or the Internet of Things or IOE, is that going to be a threat and not a benefit? And so my thought is, is that maybe we could create a hierarchy of cyber jobs. At level one, this is my thought, by the way. You know, feel free to give me some feedback if you disagree. At level one, operators. These are the button pushers. Maybe the majority of the requirement of the population and it usually comes with a complete job description. You can go ahead and you can list these things online. You know exactly what's required. Really doesn't require a deep understanding, but these are your starter jobs. This is where the most of the ads are. You find these jobs in the back of a matchbook cover. Call this 800 number and you do it. Like, if you want to be a long-haul truck driver, press 1. If you want to be a cybersecurity employee, press 2. This is where we bring people in. They push the buttons in the right order. I remember I spoke at a conference about three years ago as Isaac and Robert Herchevich was a keynote and he had done this dancing with the stars thing. And he said, yeah, when he goes out there with his wife and people say, hey, Mr. Herchevich, would you like to do some dancing here at our dance floor and, and show everybody? He says, I don't know how to dance. I said, what? He did an amazing job. I said, I know how for two minutes and 34 seconds, how to repeat a certain sequence of physical moves. And I can redo that over and over again. And I can do exactly the same thing, but I can't dance. 
And as somebody who had a grandmother who taught music for 74 years and took piano lessons for, for my you know, entire youth, I got to tell you, there's a difference between a musician and someone who can push the keys in the right order. Most people can play chopsticks. Dot, 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 dot. All right. There's not a whole lot of understanding about the music theory in that. But for the people who can play beautiful music like Chopin or something like that, that requires a much deeper understanding. And I don't think that's what you find in level one. Fortunately, we got level two. Level two analysts think for a living. They got to deal with ambiguity, partial information, often requires one or more current certifications. These are the people that we want, and probably a lot of you on this call are listening in, or the, the podcast, are at level two. Requires one or more current certs, as I said, you're in high demand. You're often characterized by employment mobility, meaning what? You're going to be moving around from job to job because there's going to be bigger opportunities. CISO tenures tend to be fairly short, although I do run into people who've been around for a number of years. But essentially, at level two, this is going to be where the action is. And now, from that point, there's probably a couple of paths you can go. Level three, A, if you will, would be developers and researchers. These are people who are creating the next generation of cybersecurity tools. These are Ron Gula, HD Moore, some, you know, you could kind of name them and people you go like, yeah, these are rock stars. They're rare. There are not too many people like this available. And they may be able, if you can find them, it's very difficult to hire them. And if you can, how do you keep them employed? They quite honestly might not have ideal social skills. I know some folks who've been brilliant in there, but you know they're kind of borderline, almost at the, on the Asperger's syndrome. Nothing wrong with that. If you understand how to create a successful environment for these people, they can produce amazing types of output. But ideally, if you can find someone who's as brilliant, you get funded and you start the next generation of tool sets and you build a little company around them. And then the three B, if you will, because at first they called it three and four and someone pointed out, hey, you know what? People don't go from three to four. So they go one or the other is a cyber strategist. And I don't even think we're talking about this yet. This is someone with a deep understanding of cyber, geopolitics, and economics who can influence senior leadership. Uh, someone like Chris Inglis. So Chris is an advisor to the President of the United States. Uh, he was a Brigadier General of the Air Force Reserve, the Deputy Director of the National Security Agency. Yeah, he checks those tickets for deep understanding of cyber, geopolitics, and economics. These people are extraordinarily rare, and a cadre of them could really become a national-level asset. So let's think about that. And, you know, how do you hire someone like that? We're not even attracting and retaining the next generation. I look at the Global Information Security Workforce Study by IC Squared. 7% of cybersecurity professionals are under the age of 29. That, to me, was kind of surprising. 13% between ages and 30 and 34, which means 80% are 35 and over. Average age is 42. And then the question is, are we reaching everyone? Because of our workforce, only 11% female. 6% of STEM workers, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, are African-American, and 7% are Hispanic. There's a huge amount of talent out there that we have not been able to reach out to effectively to say, hey, be part of this. And so as a result, through these past biases that have existed, which hopefully are going away, I, I can't, I got to admit, they're probably still there for a lot of people, but in general, we should be a meritocracy, is that you lose out on access to the talent if you blind yourself. And that's not just the United States. That's a global issue. The workforce gap is pervasive because what we find out is 
a huge number of jobs. United States, this estimate here from the IC squared, 879,000 employed with 359,000 openings. Next biggest set of openings, like that, Mexico having 195,000 unfilled jobs. Even something is, you know, South Korea at 44,000, even Singapore at 17,000 people. That's a huge number of people when you think about it. Gee whiz, I went to Northwestern, our entire undergraduate campus is only 6,500 people for everything. And so now we're talking about huge, huge volumes of universities constantly cranking people out, try to fill it. So what's the pipeline look like? If you take a look at the cybersecurity job postings, of 143,000 of them studied by Rasmussen University, they said 93% of them require at least a bachelor's degree. And 68% of the companies that they surveyed said hacking competitions help build better skills. Okay, well, if hacking competitions build better skills, where can you go to college to get a degree in hacking competition? Uh, yeah, there is, of course, a cybersecurity you know, cyber, you know, collegiate cybersecurity challenges and things like that. But we're starting to see that hands-on experience and professional certifications may be better ways to acquire skills. See, if 70% of employers prefer a bachelor's degree, but I don't think our educational system can respond quickly enough. I taught as an adjunct professor at a university a few years ago and cybersecurity. And what I found then is that the prior professor that they'd asked me to take over when I said, can I take a look at his syllabus? They said, well, we kind of prefer you write your own. That seemed kind of strange. Usually success leaves clues. And I'm figuring like, well, they don't want me to do this. I went to the Wayback Machine and found out that this guy had not changed his syllabus in eight years. See, bureaucracy takes years to approve new curriculum in universities because let's face it, chemistry doesn't change a whole lot from day to day. Mathematics doesn't change a whole lot from year to year at least the stuff you teach at an undergraduate level. And so as a result, you can have a very slow, ossified process, which eventually grinds out new curricula. But if you listen to me talk at any point in time over the years, you know that GMARC's corollary to Moore's Law is half of what you know about security will be obsolete in 18 months. And so as a result, what that does is it creates a conflict in the former educational environments where you want your people to go ahead and students to go through a well-vetted curriculum with professors who know their stuff, but yet be able to get with inside that OODA loop, the observe, orient, decide, and act to say, hey, you know what? The industry is changing faster than some universities can keep up with. See, cyber demands ongoing knowledge. You can't rely on your initial training. It's not as if I go and become, let's say, an apprentice and then a journeyman and eventually a master where I kind of keep going there, but most of the basic skills I learned in a trade school. You got to continually retool for your job. And university education, of which I have degrees, I'm like, that's very theory rich and practice poor in general. So continuing education is offered as a solution. It might be able to help you keep up, but can help people get ahead. Now, maybe we just need a whole new paradigm because all of this assumes we have a fixed model of human involvement in the profession. So let's see if history has any insights. If we look at automotive manufacturing, back in 1900, vehicles were made by hand. It took weeks to assemble a car. Ta-da! There it is. All right. What's that? Yeah, that, that's uh, July and August right there. By 1909, Henry Ford had a Model T going, just assembled in 12 hours. Now, four years later, Ford rigged a 150-foot line and a winch. So instead of people having to push this thing along, you had 140 stationary workers. 
that they could complete a vehicle every three hours. By 1927, Ford was building a Model T every 24 seconds. Think about that. 1927, the capacity to generate a completed automobile every 24 seconds. And by 2013, Ford was producing 16 vehicles every minute globally. And yet during that same time frame, UAW membership dropped from 1.5 million to about 300,000, 80% drop. Now, somebody had brought up when I was discussing this with them the other day, they said, well, maybe that's because of the presence of foreign cars in the U.S. market that wasn't there back in 1927 or something like that. Okay, fair. This is actually, that range, by the way, is from 1979 to 2009. So in that 30-year period, when you have an 80% drop, I would suggest respectively that the raw number of vehicles on the road from the United States did not drop 80%. Sure, we have more in imports, but a lot of cars are still made in the United States, even if they have brands like Toyota or things like that. So think about that. What we're seeing then, and particularly look at Tesla now, with the fully, nearly fully automated assembly, is that the job descriptions are changing. We don't need automotive workers anymore. We need software engineers and mechanical engineers to build these systems. Fast Company Magazine published an article that said, bet you didn't see this coming, 10 jobs that would be replaced by robots. Insurance underwriters, bank tellers, financial analysts, construction workers, now you can go print a house, inventory managers, farmers, taxi drivers, you're seeing that already, manufacturing workers, you're seeing that with the uh, things like Tesla, journalists. How about movie stars where I've seen places where they have, if you get all the right phrases, and someone will sit in a recording studio for about three days. Okay, say, say, blah, say, e, what, and these weird, weird noises. But then you can assemble them to make it sound like an Alexa or like a Google Assistant or anything else for that matter. And now, instead of having to pay for an actor for weeks or months on the set, let me just sit you down and say, here's a check. I want you to read this script for the next three days, and then we're done. And oh, by the way, we get the right to use the byproduct. Now, between animation and building things with computers, virtual environments, and having that information, you'll never have to pay a movie star again. Ooh, interesting. Now, artificial intelligence, how about that? How about AI? It's gonna allow us to do more things with far less effort and lower cost. That's kind of the idea. Well, McKinsey suggested there's 140 million knowledge worker jobs that could be in jeopardy within the next four years. 30% of finance and insurance jobs. Half of all clerical roles in developed economies are at risk of being automated by 2029, according to a PwC study. And there's a Financial Times article I'd read called AI Eyes Your Job. It just happened to be on a plane when I was uh, getting a copy of Financial Times. And there was that article. I said, got to remember this one. I'm going to use it on a talk. The thought here from CNBC, it said automation and AI is going to eliminate 6% of human jobs, 40% of legal sector jobs, and accounts have about a 95% chance of losing their job to automation. Now, here's my thought for you. What happens if this occurs in the cyber workforce? You see, it's not just automation because outsourcing is now a common in computer science. We send jobs to IT workers in other countries. Remember Boeing doing their programming overseas. We provide foreign-born workers H-1B visas to work in the United States. Management still driven to control costs and increase profitability. And as long as it's profit uber alles, then that's going to find a way to squeeze any way they can. And the impact is being felt on the cybersecurity workforce. ESG did a report called The Life and Times of Cybersecurity Professionals. They found out that 
when you talk to people in our career, only 31% felt they had a well-defined career path. 61% are somewhat or not very or not at all satisfied with their current job. And 63% said their organization doesn't give them enough training. Also, we've been outsourcing labor. We've been moving manufacturer to places like China for years. Management is sacrificing American jobs for higher margins. And made in America is becoming sort of a quaint memory. But this was considered necessary because of globalization. See, back in the day of President Reagan, NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, was envisioned by President Reagan to allow North America to better compete with the European Union. Well, as a consequence, it sent hundreds of thousands of manufacturing jobs to Mexico, and the maquilladores down there became a way to provide for labor and then trying to make the border a little bit more transparent, at least to the flow of goods and things worked out pretty well in terms of trying to maintain North American competitiveness against the EU. See, it's a little bit bigger than cyber. The Trans-Pacific Partnership, TPP, also known as the CPTPP, was signed in February 2016. Now, when President Trump took office in January 2017, he withdrew the United States as a member of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. President Xi submitted China as a member in September of 2021. And so the Chinese are saying, hey, if you want to be part of this, we will. Interesting. If we look at computer science graduates and how many people graduate from uh, computer science, India, 215,000 computer science graduates annually. China, 185,000. U.S., under 50,000. Russia, about 17,000. But for the Forbes article, I found undergraduate students at the end of their computer science programs in the United States have much higher levels of computer science skills then their counterparts in three major economic and political powers, China, India, and Russia. So we're going to say we don't have more, but we have better. Okay, well, what's the quality over quantity advantage in cybersecurity? Then when you add to that that the gig economy is going global, if you look at freelancing like Fiverr or Freelancer or Guru or People Per Hour, India, 24% of those jobs. Bangladesh, 16. United States, yeah, we're up there, 12% of them. Pakistan and the Philippines, down 8 and 7%. Things are heading east. 61% of the gig economy is now based in Asia, while only 14% is in North America. Why? Well, show me the money. I mean, show me the savings, right? Entry-level IT worker in China is about $7,000 a year. The same level of worker in India, ah, they're expensive, $8,400 a year. But guess what? They already speak English, because English is widely spoken in India based upon the British occupation of that over a couple centuries. So now you pay a little bit more money and people speak your language if you're American. The H-1B visa workers tend to make less than the U.S.-born equivalent, so let's see if we can't get H-1B visas over here. Now, Congress has capped the regular visas at about 65 k a year, 20000 more for a master's degree or higher, and you get exemptions for higher education, nonprofits, yada, yada. But yet, when you throw in all those exemptions and special things, there's nearly a half a million Indian-born H-1B visa workers in the United States. And the question is, if the company could pay them less than you pay an American citizen, and you can get the similar level of skills or quality of expertise, and they are in the office here in the U.S., why not? Then the other aspect has to do with other nations kind of using their, flexing their legal muscle. In China, the cybersecurity regulations that were effective in 2019 say that all network operators must tell the government the sensitivity of their data handled, what strategies they use to protect it, and what government-approved, what Chinese government-approved infrastructure they use, every network operator. And police teams have the authority 
They can plug directly into the networks to verify. These invasive audits and inspections could expose your source code. They do background checks required on selected employees. Essentially, to do business in China, you have to let the Chinese government see everything. Well, no, no way, no, no, wait, but it's cheap. Yep, and you can do it. Okay, maybe. You see, American and European companies are giving in. Because if a company moves a factory overseas, then you're going to want tech workers near the manufacturing plant, right? And the governments of China and India even require this for market access. So our IT jobs are now, if you will, a trailing indicator of employment, not a leading one. Follow the factory. So what could possibly go wrong for the West? Could this trend inhibit Western students from pursuing computer security and computer science degrees? Well, I mean, why go for a career that's going to face a downward pressure on salaries as more work is outsourced to cheaper countries? And maybe this is a more serious national trend than we think currently. And what if the gap between requirements and available domestic skilled laborers continue to widen. See, there's a geopolitical impact of AI and automation as well. You see, Western nations have enjoyed waves of industrialization for the last 200 years and the manufacturing employment that it brings. It's allowed America to create a middle class and to reach the level of economic success that we have. But the challenge then is retooling an already skilled marketplace. Look at Lou Gerstner, what he did with IBM when he moved them from a mainframe or from a PC manufacturing company, which was their big push back there in the 80s when everything became commoditized, to moving it to a consulting business. Some leaders can do that. But now, what about developing nations that missed their chance? They never had a chance to build this cadre of educated, skilled workers that could then be retooled for another factory. Because with increased automation, what's the population going to do for work? You look at some of the nations that are in the Middle East that provide a lot of oil and energy, they don't need to hire people. When I was over there in Qatar, they were, what, a quarter million uh, citizens and about 1.5 million expats. A lot of the work is done by non-citizens. And so kids take on, they got nothing to do, they got all the money in the world, they get very risky behaviors and things such as that. Well, that's one challenge, but what challenges that also create for government stability? And also because it creates opportunities for non-government organizations like Al-Qaeda, or Taliban, or ISIS to be able to go ahead and recruit from a set of people who are bored, who don't have challenges, who don't see a career path, and somehow see, wait, could be convinced that someone could be blamed for all of that. You see, recruiting success for those types of organizations do not often come from people in well-established jobs. They're like, no, why would I do that? In fact, you go after places, countries that have not had that opportunity to industrialize, and therefore they have a large unemployment population of younger people. That's fertile ground for recruitment. Now, what's the implication on the marketplace of all this? A lack of competitiveness for our businesses, our loss of intellectual property. All right, all this stuff is getting shipped overseas and governments are saying, thank you very much. IT security really has become as critical as finance. You cannot be in business without it. And that's in the corporate world. On the government side, cyber compromise is the leading mechanism for espionage today. We look at CMMC and some of the initiatives coming out of the federal government to try to address that. And that's going through lurches and efforts as they went from CMMC 1 to version 2. And I'm certified as a practitioner. And they said, hey, you're going to have this great future. And then when they came out of version 2, they said, yeah, we're going to let everybody self-certify. Then why did I spend this time and money learning this? Oh, don't worry. We'll make it worth your while. We'll see. Basically, cyber represents a low investment mechanism to fight and win a war. You can go head to head with the largest armies and win. 
and you don't have to risk battlefield casualties. Dr. Thomas Adams had wrote in Future Warfare and the Decline of Human Decision-Making, published in Parameters, which is the Army War College magazine. Warfare has begun to leave human space. Military systems on the horizon will create an environment that are too complex for humans to direct, and the proliferation of information-based systems will produce a data overload that'll make it impossible for humans to directly intervene in decision-making. So we will simply pretend to be in complete control. See, when computers are designed and programmed by other computers, this situation is going to be even further from anything humans can reasonably expect to understand, much less intervene successfully. By the way, guess when that article was written? 2001. Yeah. So what's our future? (laughs) Is it going to be dystopian like the Terminator? Maybe it'll be hopeful like Star Trek. But you know what both of those futures have in common? Everything is automated. Computers run the show. And computers essentially write codes for other computers. So who watches the watchers may no longer be the operative question. It's who programs the programmers may be the future. So I hope I've given you a couple ideas and things to think about in the demise of the cybersecurity workforce. Is everything going as well as we thought we could, or are we potentially getting ready to face a disruptive event? I don't know. But I wanted you to start thinking about these things, and I do certainly welcome your feedback. I want to thank you for listening to our CISO Tradecraft show. And if you've enjoyed learning about these things or just kind of getting your mind going, get other people to share it. Let them know about it. Send us a referral link and things like that. And uh, as always, if you can, follow us on LinkedIn if you're not already. And stay listening. So this is G. Mark Hardy. Until next time, stay safe out there.